This is Chris. Welcome to episode 57 of x Lapsed, where uh, your uh, humble host is still dealing with uh, a boatload of allergies. I uh, hope it's not too apparent or too distracting as we uh, work our way through these books, but uh, it's been a long, hot summer, and uh, even though we're in, we're about to go into the second week of November, um, my, uh, my local state, Arizona, we're still holding on to the 90-plus degree uh, weather here. Um, if the uh, if the little weather report on my watch is any indication, or if it's correct, hopefully it is, we only got two more days of it, and then it'll drop down to uh, the high 60s and low 70s Fahrenheit, which, uh, I mean, it feels like it usually happens before now. This is, this is a very, very long summer, but... Um, Enough of that nonsense. Let's get into the book that we're going to be discussing today, and that is Marauders Number 8. This had an April 2020 cover date. The story is called Furious Anger, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski. This one had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale February 19th of 2020. So, we open on a field trip to Mars, where a group of uh, young Krakoans are being given an intergalactic tour by the Frosts, Emma and Christian. Now, this is apparently where some of the magical meds are grown, and we can see that they're being tended to by some Krakoan automatons that have been created by Forge. They're really creepy-looking, um, humanoid-shaped things. Now, just as this tour is about to head to its next destination, the Savage Land, it is thankfully interrupted, because who the hell wants to go to the Savage Land? Come on, nobody. And nobody wants to read about it either. It's interrupted, though, by some bad news. Emma receives a psychic call from Bishop. Now, it seems that Emma is the only telepath who could hear his shout, and she posits that this is due to her using the cuckoos as a sort of strategically placed, like, Wi-Fi boosters. You know, if you, if you have a very big house and you have just the one Wi-Fi router and you, you, know, you put the little plugs around so you can get better signal, I guess she's using the cuckoos like that. Anywho, Bishop is on that salvage ship that we saw him board last issue, and he's requesting backup. He asks uh, Emma here to look through his eyes, and when she does, she sees a bound body bobbing in the surf of Madripoor Bay. Emma physically manages to keep her cool long enough to inform the children that the tour, eh, we're going to cancel, we'll resume it another time. Once they're gone, however, she collapses to her knees, and she gives a, to me, my marauders, which, yeah, I know what they're going for here. I'm pretty sure we've seen a to me, my dot, dot, dot for like just about every Dawn of X team, but 
This trope is getting so tired. I <laughs> I am so bored of the two me, my X-Force. Two me, my fallen angels. It makes me feel like uh, anytime um, I'm reading like a, a Batman book or a Bat-centric book and a new creator comes on and you can tell they're chomping at the bit to do the scene with the damn pearls. You know, they, they, they're going to work that damn scene in there where we're going to go to the origin. We're going to see Martha's pearls scatter all over Crime Alley. They're just chomping at the bit to do it. And I feel like a to me, my dot, dot, dot insert team here is kind of an X-Men equivalent of that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's getting tired. <laughs> From here, we got credits. Then our roll call, and it's Christian Frost, Emma Frost, Iceman, Bishop, Storm, Sebastian Shaw, and Shinobi Shaw. Now we hop back into comics with Iceman's arrival at Kristen Frost's vessel, the Mercury. And it looks like he's the only marauder who's able to answer this call. Emma says he'll be more than enough, and uh, that they're bound to go back to Madripoor. Bobby asks what's up, and Emma suggests that he prepare himself for some bad news. He also comments that the Mercury is a strange boat, to which he's told it's not a boat. Hmm. Back to the barge, the body has just been retrieved from the bay by a Verendi goon. Now, they're planning on performing an autopsy and deducing the DNA, all that good stuff. Bishop is watching from the shadows here, and when the time is right, he strikes. He hits the goon with a stun blast. He then unbags the body and confirms what we readers already know. He does take a piece of her bindings and uh, pockets it for uh, subsequent study. I mean, we know that that's uh, some Krakoan stuff, but uh, maybe Bishop will find out that uh, pretty soon himself. Just then, Bishop is found by another goon, and so he fires another shock blast. Emma is still telepathically linked to him, and she instructs him to make it to the stern of the ship. Though, if that's not an option, she tells him to, quote, shelter in place. Which, uh, that's a term that I'd imagine much of the planet wasn't overly familiar with back in February. What a difference a month makes, isn't it? Huh. In fact, Bishop himself doesn't even know what shelter in place means, so, uh, how about that? Suddenly, the barge hits ice, which naturally catches the goons by surprise. Then, the inside of the hull starts getting a little bit frosty. Well, well freezing, actually. One of the baddies suggests that the marauders are here, but they're not all that worried. They figure they're safe behind their, you know, big bay door here, and the only one that can get in there is Magneto. But, uh, he's, uh, not right, uh, because, uh, they've got Iceman, and, uh, that big old door at the, to the hull starts to frost over, and then, bada-bing, bada-boom, or bada-thum, actually, Iceman is able to bust his way in. Now, before the goons can start firing, Bobby gives them all some very, very brutal frostbite. Fingers are frozen and snapping off when they pull triggers. It's, it's really quite a scene. Bishop reminds Iceman about that pesky Krakoan law, to which Bobby just freezes one of the bad guy's arms and then smashes it to pieces, which I figure will probably leave a mark. Bobby gives the goons a warning, and he pretty much dares them to bring the fight to his door. Then he and Bishop blink out back to the Mercury which Bishop refers to as Emma's sub, to which Bobby tells him that it's not a sub. Hmm, not a boat, not a sub? I wonder what it could be. There, 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 was, a, there was once a character called Mercury, right? Ah. Anyway, Bobby meets up with Emma to ask if they're heading to Arbor Magna for, uh, for Call Me Kate. Emma replies that she's got something she needs to attend to first, and uh, that something is... Tell Storm. And so, we jump ahead to the moment where she does. Now, Storm is understandably furious and blames Emma for everything. 
She says Kitty should have never been allowed to leave Krakoa until they knew why she couldn't use the gateways. Emma, eh, she tries to reason with Storm, suggesting that Kitty would have never agreed to any of that. Her leading the Marauders, surrounded by Omega-level and otherwise extremely powerful mutants, was Emma's sort of kind of way of protecting her the best she can. Storm slaps Emma across the face. Storm continues to cry, coming to grips to, with coming to grips with the fact that not only did Kitty die, but she died alone. Lightning crashes and all that because she is just out of control. Then, Emma and Storm embrace. Emma attempts to give Storm a telepathic gift, and it's uh, basically the way she felt when she saw Cyclops' resurrection back in uh, House of X number 5, I think. It's hope, you know? She's given her hope, and the idea that anything can happen in this new landscape here. I mean, life is kind of just a thing, right? Now, this helps Storm to realize that Kitty's story is very, you know, very likely to continue, right? It's not over yet. From here, we shift scenes to a Shaw family dinner, where we're about to be introduced to their pair of Black Knights. <sighs> now, I've been waiting to see these geeks again, but I haven't been looking forward to it. Uh, folks, we've got ourselves some more upstarts getting involved in the form of... Uh, the friggin' Fenris twins. Now, the uh, first thing these fools do is complain about having to wear black, since white is more their style. Sebastian suggests that, hey, you know what, one of these days I might be able to help you with that. We might have some white seats opening up soon. From here we get an info page, and it has Sinister Secrets. It's been a little while since we've read any Sinister Secrets, so let's, let's see what they're all about here. Sinister Secret number 16 is uh, from Sinister to a certain K, pulling a power move of sitting out a meeting. And I'm guessing that this is probably a reference to Kitty not being able not being able to attend the latest Quiet Council get-together. I mean, we know why she couldn't, but I guess Sinister just thought she was uh, just sitting it out, right? Uh, Sinister Secret number 17. A certain quirky Q not getting his clothing order from Jumbo Carnation. And I figure that's almost got to be Quentin Quire. Uh, whose whole ascent during the Morrison run at, you know, the riot at Xavier's story, that spun out of the murder of Jumbo. So they do have a link there, and I'm guessing that that's probably, you know, that, that might be what we're talking about here. Sinister Secret number 18. It's about Stinger, and I'm assuming this is a reference to a former villain from that, you know, that goofy-ass Alliance of Evil back in the earliest days of X-Factor. Um, from the secret here, I guess uh, she's the first mutant in the post-Krakoa world to get knocked up. Uh, it talks about her, you know, having a baby bump, so um, just putting pieces together here. Uh, Sinister Secret number 19, it's something about seeing double and gross punchable faces. And uh, this one won't stay secret for long, and, well, actually, if I'm reading it right, the previous scene kind of spilled the beans on this one, because next thing we see is Sinister Secret revealed, and it's all about Fenris. And, uh, oh boy, how do they suck. So on that, Sinister and I agree. They are pretty terrible. Now, we wrap up this issue back in Madripoor with that fishing family we met at the, la the end of last issue. Now, the kid is trying to feed that tiny purple dragon they found some food. The father feels like this is a waste, to which Lockheed burps out a bit of flame. This tickles the tot, and we are out of here. The next issue we'll be discussing is New Mutants number 7. But, uh... Let's have a little talking time here and uh, and talk about what we learned today. Um, this is another fine issue. 
Um, not only that, it was a necessary issue in which we get to see how many of the marauders react to the death of Call Me Kate. And they, you know, they all reacted pretty much the way we'd expect. Um, you know, Emma, you know, she falls to her knees, having put Kitty in this position to begin with, only to have her, you know, perish. And we've seen Emma lose her young charges before, right? So it stands to reason that she, she would just be, you know, kind of shut down over this. Also, it was, you know, perfectly in character for her to wait until she was alone to do so. So she was able to keep up the facade of, you know, nothing's wrong until, uh, until she was alone. And it makes sense to me. Now, Bishop, making the discovery, he reacted with caution, and he maintained his composure even after confirming what we all feared, you know. Now, this reaction felt right to me. Even in spite of how chummy he and Kitty have gotten of late, I, I feel like Bishop would, uh, would treat this, you know, professionally, you know. And also, on that note, it's worth noting that Bishop, he acts like a police officer here. He collects a sample of Kitty's bindings. I thought that was a very nice touch. And I'm guessing that's probably going to lead to, um, you know, some finger pointing. I don't know that it'll go directly to shore right away, but at least, you know, they're going to know it was Krakoan in, uh, in origin. So there's going to be some, uh, some trouble brewing and probably a lot of suspicious minds. Uh, Iceman, he reacts violently and uh, kind of wants to get his pound of flesh out of the goons. I'd say the anger feels about right. Uh, Bobby and Kitty have been pretty close for a while now and uh, were even for a time romantically linked. So I could see Bobby losing his cool here. You know, no pun intended. The brutality, though, maybe a bit much. Um, I mean, this scene with him snapping off appendages... It reminds me of those early kitty scenes from this volume Where, like, she would have no problem or no qualms Like, phasing solid objects through through her, her foe's legs or whatever or, Like, putting two of them together like they were on a spit Really brutal Maybe even a bit too brutal, um, if I'm being honest Now, Storm's reaction was more or less exactly what I expected uh, You know, something awful happened to someone very dear to her And... Like many of us do, she needed something, somewhere, or someone to focus her frustration and anger on, right? I mean, a lot of us have had bad things happen. Bad things that are blameless, you know? Just, you know, I, I mean, pardon the crudeness, but, you know, the whole shit happens sort of thing. I, I think a lot of us have had those blameless bad things happen, and uh, it makes the situation worse, doesn't it? I mean... At least if someone caused a bad situation, you could at least blow off some steam in their direction, right? It's, it's cathartic. It's, I don't know. I think it's just part of the part of the grieving and healing process. Here, I mean, Storm's angry. We can see that it's justified. It makes a lot of sense. She knows Emma, despite giving Kitty this job, didn't actually kill her, but Emma's there, right in front of her, and she can take the hit. And she does, literally. You know, Storm does strike her. So Emma does let Storm blow off her steam before, you know, before they talk about the, the likelihood that, you know, Kitty's going to be back soon. You know? Um, the embrace there was really good. I liked, I liked Emma kind of just letting Storm in and letting her know that uh, she had the same concerns when, when Cyclops and the Orcus team died, you know? I think this was really, really cool stuff. Um, and I like this. And it's funny, because, I mean, just a few episodes ago, we talked about giant size X-Men, Jean Grey, plus Emma Frost, right? 
And I wonder why this wasn't the scene that manifested when that big cat in Storm's psyche asked Emma if she was a friend of Storm's. I mean, then again, who knows the order in which these stories are coming, right? For all we know, the five giant size issues were supposed to be read in one big gulp, or maybe... Hell, <laughs> maybe they happened on Earth too, for all I know. We, we, we will try not to worry about that here. So yeah. I really dug the reactions to Kitty's passing. Um, I mean, keeping up with things I enjoyed. I, I, As much as I think Fenris sucks, I dug seeing them here. Um, I am a lore guy, and I'll take all the lore I can get. And the Fenris twins were part of the upstart, so I guess I'm stuck taking them. Um, it makes me wonder, like, who, who's next? Are we going we gonna to pull Sienna Blaze out of the mothballs here? <laughs> I probably shouldn't put that into the universe, though. Um... On the other side of it here, let's talk about something I'm getting a little tired of here. Um, to me, my marauders notwithstanding, because that was just... Ugh. I'm really getting bored with the X-Men fighting nameless, faceless, mercenary goons. And I understand the landscape. I understand what's going on. I mean, we're kind of painted into a corner, right? We made all the best bad guys into X-Men allies. But this is getting so played out. Um... How many more months can we see the various X-teams fighting and just wrecking dudes? You know, just dudes. We see Zeno, we see Merc, Orcus, the Cartel, Verendi. It's a bit much, right? <laughs> it's. I'm very, very tired of it. Uh, I mean, when we see, like, the the, the Junior Hellfire Club, the, the actual ominous Verendi uh, team, that was refreshing because it was people we actually know, and it's not just... It's not just people in flak outfits. And because that's all we're getting. <laughs> it's making it so having Deathbird in the Shi'ar is, is almost refreshing, which I, is something I never thought I'd say. But I'd like to move on to a point where we're not just fighting goons. I don't know if that'll, that time will come before uh, te- X of Tens. I don't know if I haven't looked at X of Tens yet. So for all I know, that's still going on there. But, uh, yeah, getting tired of it. Looking forward to... I don't know. I don't even know what I'm looking forward to because, like I said, all the best bad guys are on Krakoa. So it's like we have to wait for a a defection almost. Um, which, hey, may or may not happen. Who knows? Overall, though, I really dug this issue. It was a necessary next step sort of issue, and it did what it did very well. Um, the art here from Caselli was very, very good. Really, um... My only complaints are the same complaints I've had about a lot of the X-Books, and that uh, the if we got to do punchy-punchy time, can we actually get some villains and not just dudes in armor and dudes in suits? Just uh, give me something different. But uh, other than that, really, really great issue. Um, before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here to talk about another really, really good issue. And this is a letter from Al, and he's talking about New Mutants number one. He says... So now we have the return of New Mutants. I agree this was a good one. I do wonder why Mondo and Chamber are here, though. I mean, I get why they were there for the Krakoa scenes, but why did they go into space to get Cannonball? I don't recall them having any particular connection to him or the others. And yeah, that's uh, your point is well taken here. I, I just assumed they were going for like an amalgamated young mutants team with this, you know? Uh, since they weren't launching a Generation X or a new X-Men or... God forbid, a young X-Men. I figured they'd just stick all the next-gens in this book. 
But like I said, uh, your point is well taken here. Why why would they take Chamber and Mondo up to uh, Shi'ar space while leaving like Boom Boom behind? That doesn't seem right. I mean, is uh, is Magma is she is she around? <laughs> I, I think she's on the cover of an issue coming up, so she's there. Why why didn't they take her? Uh, is Gossamer around? Bird Brain? Are they? <laughs> God, oh, oh, I could only imagine. Uh, Al continues. But still, it's nice to see the two of them again, particularly Mondo. I'm curious to see what they do with him, since I think he was used more in the Age of Apocalypse mini than in the regular Gen X book. And yeah, you know, Mondo's a weird choice. Though with his power set and this, you know, brave new Krakoa, I suppose he, you know, he makes a bit more sense. And yeah, he really didn't get a whole lot of play back in the original Generation X series. I, I, I can't even think of a single thing he did besides turn on the team. You know, he, he joined up with Black Tom. It, it's it's also kind of weird that we haven't gotten a uh, Black Tom and uh, Mondo scene, considering they're both there. Huh, maybe, maybe that's coming. Who knows? Uh, Al continues, I'm also liking the Sienkiewicz effects on magic. I hope they keep that up. And yeah, I mean, the Sienkiewiczian touches were pretty much perfect here, and... The art here from Rod Reese, uh, I've said it every time we've seen it, it's its ridiculous. I can't even... It, oof, it's great. It's some really, really awesome stuff. Uh, Al continues, This was a different side of Corsair than we're used to seeing. More hard-edged. How often have we seen him or the Starjammers when either one of his kids isn't around or Xavier isn't on the team? Could that be why? And I agree. Um, you know, the... The entire Starjammers team felt pretty weird here, um, especially considering we'd seen them at Summer House in X-Men number one, and they seemed like, uh, I don't know, they seemed like their usual-ish selves. They were just cool. They were nice. They weren't, uh, they didn't have a, like a bug up their ass like they did in, in New Mutants. I don't know if maybe they were trying to drive home the point that the New Mutants were maybe just getting on their nerves, uh, which worked, though maybe it was a little bit ham-fisted. Maybe it was just a matter of the Starjammers being, like, on the job, you know? Like, they were out to steal whatever it was that they stole, and the kids were just kind of in the way. I don't know. I don't know if we were just supposed to... We were supposed to think that they were just grading on one another, or that this space travel was taking a very long time, and they were just in such close quarters together. But yeah, this was a different different side to them. They're, they weren't the uh, swash, swashbuckling, easy for me to say, swashbuckling space pirates. There we go. They weren't that, <laughs> despite actually being space pirates here. They just seemed a little bit, uh, how did you put it here, harder-edged, and I, I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, Al continues, whatever the reason, I knew he was lying, and I'm looking forward to meeting Sunspot's space lawyer. And yes, the wicked space lawyer. Uh, what a letdown that's going to be. <laughs> it was a cute scene, but I was expecting to get a bit more out of that. But it really, it really doesn't go anywhere. I think it was more a sight gig than anything else. Um, Al closes up by saying, "Next up, X Force number one," and I am definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that issue because uh, that one's got a pretty big cliffhanger. So uh, I, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how you'll receive it, and I, I really can't wait to hear your thoughts on that. But uh, thank you so much, and um, if anybody else would like to write in, you could do so very, very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter and at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. If you're interested in seeing some of the stuff I've written or 
a whole bunch of podcasting stuff, you could head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you're just interested in Xlapsed, hey, we can still be friends. I got a site for that too. That's xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you'd like to talk about the X-Men with me and a bunch of uh, other like-minded individuals on Facebook, you can do so at 90s X-Men. And if you want to listen to a whole bunch of other stuff, you could go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com for the full Chris and Reggie channel archives there. Thousands of hours for your listening pleasure. So I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. One more big thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.